you were to put a label on our passage this morning, it would be the word injustice. Um, My premise this morning is a very simple point, that the struggle for life to be right, to be just, is absolutely huge for most people in the world. You know, we learned this pretty early on when we had children uh, as parents. I think some of the first words my children ever learned or spoke was, that's not fair. You can have an example of this by just working in our nursery some morning where you'll have toddler A who finds his, uh, his favorite little plastic dinosaur, but then all of a sudden over here you have toddler B who spies said dinosaur and decides that he's going to walk over there and take the dinosaur away and keep it for himself. Looking at the face of toddler A <laughs> is the topic of my sermon this morning. Because as quaint as that seems, you really have to consider the fact that every single day in our world, there are gross offenses against humanity that are committed. I was reading an article uh, online called The Faces of Oppression. And oppression, they said, happens when people are not allowed to fully function as humans. And it happens in all different kinds of ways. There's, There's exploitation the act of using people's labors to, to produce a certain uh, 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 profit for yourself without fairly compensating them. There's marginalization, which is the act of sort of confining a group uh, of people to the outer limits of society, a process of exclusion. You have powerlessness, where there's you know, this ability to sort of keep people from having what they need, which is the power to make their lives a little bit better. Or even just outright violence, of course, where you have unprovoked attacks on a person's livelihood or their person, one of the more obvious uh, versions of oppression. But what I want you to understand for our purpose this morning is, is injustice in the world is a massive topic in the Bible. And what happens to us who have reasonably orderly lives and orderly societies is it's as if we really have a little bit of a luxury of every time we open the Bible, we tend to think that its major point to me is to get me to think about my acts of personal piety, my ways of uh, you know, being a better, holier person. But, but even a cursory look at the Old Testament prophets will show you that God's preoccupation is about suffering in our communities every bit as much as it is about our own personal holiness. I've got some friends of mine with whom I'm reading through the Bible in a year. And we recently came across this passage in Isaiah 58. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. He says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They say, Why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't take any knowledge of it? So the Lord says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Now, I could multiply passages like that all day long from the, from, the, from the prophets. But let's be honest, in a society like ours, it's as if we have a little bit of privilege of distance from what might be considered to be the more obvious forms of oppression operating in the world today. 
You know, and what that's led to is to gravitate towards visions of God that accommodate that blindness. We talk about God being a God of love, we're assured. You know, your whole, you're wrathful, like angry at sin, God. That, that's a relic of the past, thank you very much. Well, there's actually a lot of writers these days who are challenging this, this tendency for uh, cultures to be attracted to theological constructs that support your own insulated world. You know, in the West, they explain, we don't talk about injustice as much because we've not had our relatives, our spouses, our children, our parents hauled away for bogus political ends. Miroslav Wolf is a professor of faith and culture at Yale and wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, where he talked about seeing the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo firsthand. And he says, this is the reason why Western theologians are so offended by talking about a God of judgment is because things have been relatively easy for them. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not judge and bring a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in a refusal of God to judge. But in a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that conception will invariably die, as with other pleasant conceptions of the liberal mind. See what he's saying? He says, for the vast majority of humanity that are living on the earth at this moment, whether or not someone can right the wrongs that have been committed against them is a daily preoccupation, constantly on their minds. We've just been too insulated in the West to see it. And so my point this morning is we have a passage where Jesus is insulated from nothing, bearing the grossest of injustices that you can encounter on this earth in the midst of his death. And we spoke last week about the fact that God is not, Luke is not actually bringing these uh, 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 visions of Jesus to commend him to us on the basis of pity. But rather what he's doing is we're seeing Jesus wrapping himself in something of ours so that he can neutralize it, so that he can absorb it. And so this morning we see Jesus wrapping himself in one of the most profound acts of human injustice in order though, to enact the, uh, the most powerful means possible to help put an end to it forever, wherever it might rear its ugly head. So two points this morning I just want to make. First, I want you to see the gall of injustice, that pit in the stomach. But then secondly, I want you to see the satisfaction of injustice. Let's look first of all at the gall. You got to wrap your mind around the three things that Jesus goes through that are just the epitome of awful in this trial that he goes through. The first sort of thing that comes to him is the Jewish leaders, right? The Jewish council comes and asks him a very pointed question in verse 67. But Jesus refuses to answer. Why won't he do that? Well, I think it's because he knows that their idea of the Messiah is nothing like what he's actually come to bring. And whatever he says, it's just going to be twisted. Look what he says. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Can't you see him just sighing when he says that? He's like, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. In other words, he looks and says, I'm trapped in your sort of world. And that's what happens. The trapped feeling that overtakes you when injustice grips you, that Jesus understands what it's like to be profoundly misunderstood and mistreated because of it. Look, there's really some, you know, um, but look what Jesus actually does say. 
He says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There in verse 69. What's he saying there? He says, well, he, he doesn't expect, I don't think, his followers to really understand what he's saying. But when he uses that phrase, the Son of Man, you know that Jesus is using his favorite title for himself. More times than any other way, he refers to himself. In the New Testament, he calls himself the Son of Man. And what he's saying is, is at this moment... From here on out, Jewish leaders, I am going to be sitting on the throne of judgment. Now look, that's some mind-bending irony if you think about it. Because by rejecting God's Messiah, these Jewish leaders, they have forfeited their right to be the leaders of the people of God. So in the act of their judging Him, they are themselves being judged by Him. And from this point onwards, Jesus is saying, the people of God are not going to be dominated by the way the old Israel thought of it. But they're going to have a new king, and you're about to execute him. Can you imagine the irony of all this? The second group of offensive that comes from is when Jesus has to face a Roman ruler. This one, of course, is the cowardice of Pilate. You know, the Roman leader, the religious leaders would like to execute Jesus, but blasphemy is not an executable offense. And so they've got to take him to a Roman governor with a charge that'll stick. And so in verse 2, they basically charge Jesus with political sedition. Of course, in a democracy, we have this idea of inalienable rights that, you know, a lot of times makes these hard to sort of really wrap our mind around. But you have to understand that in that society, so much of your well-being your social sanity, your, your cultural stability was very intimately tied to your rulers. You appealed to them for just about everything. And so it's no mistake that Luke has Pilate announcing three times that Jesus is innocent of the charges against him. And yet he still convicts him. Look, remember, numbers are very significant to the Jewish mind. The number three especially is a number of completion, which basically means that Pilate is saying, I find Jesus completely innocent, but he still bows to the crowd. He still allows himself to be sort of moved. I mean, it's one thing to be oppressed. It's another thing to be so in the face of a sniveling cowardice like Jesus had to face in Pilate. And who is Jesus going to appeal to when even the rulers himself are sort of uh, keeping him down? That's the feeling of being trapped. Jesus is trapped in a system of injustice. Not just individual acts, but a system that is now working against him that he can't get out of. The third group that he has to face is the uh, Jewish leaders. This would be King Herod. Uh, Herod's position with the Jewish would have been sort of similar to like the British crown. Uh, you know, he's still subject to the ruling authorities over the, of the Roman uh, Empire. But, but he's a sort of a cultural leader to the Jewish people. And so Pilate's hoping that, you know, Herod will go do his dirty work for him to get him out of this sort of sticky political situation. But what does Herod do? He turns Jesus into a clown. In verse 8, he basically says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, why, why don't you do some of those tricks for us? We've been waiting to see you. And he dresses him up like a clown to mock him. You know, when was the last time you were subject to public mockery? <laughs> you know, and not good-natured at that, from people who actually didn't like you. When was the last time you were like publicly laughed at? Probably junior high for most of us, right? <laughs> Isn't that what junior high was for most of us? But the picture here is nothing short of amazing when you really realize what's going on. Because here you have Jesus, the very Son of God, by whose word the very molecules in the bodies of his, 
accusers are holding together in a court that should have been defending him. No wonder Jesus doesn't have anything to say. It's just too profound a moment. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus subject himself to this? That's actually a great question. Because I don't think there's another answer to give to that question than to realize that Luke is depicting Jesus as if he is taking something on himself. I would dare say he's inviting it. He's wrapping himself in these heinous acts committed to him so that he can take it on. It's the reason why I call this the gall of injustice, because there's a pit that forms in the stomach when you feel trapped in this way. I almost am embarrassed to even use this as an illustration because it just wasn't anywhere near as big a deal as it's going to sound when I say it. But when I was in seminary, I was held up at knife point uh, by a group of guys who stumbled into, of all places, our little laundry house that we had with all the washers and dryers there on campus. It was late at night, the guys were drunk, and they were mostly har- harmless, but you know, brandishing whatever little knife they had. But what they did was, is, you know, they laughed and hooted and hollered a little bit. They grabbed someone's clothes <laughs> and a box of detergent, not making this up, and they go running off out the door and drive away. And the whole incident couldn't have lasted more than like a minute. And here was the thing, like it was not a big deal at all, but it was amazing to me how for weeks after that, it just stuck in my craw. It was like, really? You're going to, seminary students is who you're going to steal from? <laughs> People who live below the poverty line anyway? This is who you're going to steal from? It's amazing. And here I am at age 51, 30 years later, and I'm still talking about it. Why? Because even a small injustice, it sticks in the crawl. It bothers us. And you have to understand the reason why. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not just our problem with injustice. God actually has a problem as well. When God looks out and he sees the injustice among human beings, he's only got two choices. Either he can enact justice and pour out his cup on those who've committed the crimes, or he can just overlook them and let people back into his fellowship anyway. (laughs) Well, it's a problem because if he takes the first option, you know, he loses the object of his love, his people, because we're all going to be blown away by that. But if he decides to do the second option, he ceases to be God because he's let the standard loose. John R.W. Stott says that this is actually a dilemma that God has. And it's the emotion that you see him going through in the prophets, where he says that he's being constantly pulled by both of these commitments to his own holiness on the one hand, but also his love on the other for these spiritually diseased people. Or is he conflicted? (laughs) Because in those same passages that reflect these dual commitments, we also see God ordering events to sort of bring about something that would shock everybody when they saw it. More on that in just a second. But it's not just a problem for God, it's a problem for us as well. Because when injustice gets inside of us, it's like a splinter in the mind. It's almost impossible just to let it go, as much as we always tell people. It gets more heinous the more we think of it. Now why? Why do acts of injustice, whether we are the perpetrator or the receiver of it, why do they stick with us? I think there's a reason. The reason why these things hurt so bad is because the evil that we see surrounding us, it's so easy to see coming out of our own hearts. I, I heard a preacher tell a story about a preacher. Bear with me. Um, named Mark Dever, who's a pastor up in Washington, D.C., who was really good friends 
with a journalist who was a particularly forward-thinking, liberally-minded, atheist kind of person who didn't believe in God or any kind of absolute view of heaven or hell or right or wrong or good or evil. Well, working on some assignments uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the months that she was in relationship with Dever, she encountered a story about something going on in a developing country where a school teacher had been charged with raping hundreds, literally hundreds of schoolboys during his career at this school. Well, she wrote the article and she just could not shake the heinousness of it. She couldn't stop thinking about it. It was that splinter in her mind. And she would go and talk to Dever about it. And Dever would say, look, I know it was awful, but was it evil? I know you're offended by it, but is it wicked? And she said, one night in a sleepless, cold sweat, she sat up and screamed, it was evil. It was evil. And she said, suddenly occurred to her, maybe I'm evil too. That's the gall of injustice. I mean, look at verse 23. What is it that's motivating this blind rage of the crowd? They will not listen to reason. Their own authority is telling them, he's not guilty. I can't find anything. But they're whipped up into a frenzy. Why? Psychologists will actually tell you that one of the reasons why we sort of are the most violent is because we're the most self-hating. In other words, we find these little safe pieces of comfort that you'll dig yourselves in on. And the second that that tiny little space is threatened, you lash out in rage. Jesus has come along and said, look, I gave you the prophets and you hated them. And so he starts pushing them until they have to deal with him. And what happens? It explodes in an avalanche of rage. Look, this is the tyranny of injustice. Because the more thoughtful you are about the injustice around you, the more you realize that you are a principal player in that evil. It's reflected in your own heart. I'm certainly no expert on contemporary Christian music from the 1980s. Um, But I thought that Amy Grant's album, Lead Me On, was a fantastic piece of music. Um, and one of my favorite tracks on that song was a song that was actually written by none other than Janice Ian, who had come to fame in the late seventies with the song, um, at 17. Well, she wrote the song that Grant performed called what about the love? And it depicts the writer's encounter with injustice all around them uh, and the condescending attitudes that they had towards them. You know, she, uh, she's accosted by a fire and brimstone preacher. She confronts the wealth economy and how, where everything seems to be monetized. Uh, you know, she, she, she sees the tragedy of ageism and how we sequester our elderly into facilities so that we can get them out of our way. But the end of the song, she says this. She says, I looked into the mirror, proud as I could be, and I saw my pointing finger pointing back at me, saying, who named you accuser? Who gave you the scales? I hung my head in sorrow. I could almost feel the nails. I said, this is how it is to be crucified and judged without love. You know, King David is uh, sort of trapped in his own zeal for justice when he hears about a man who stole a solitary lamb when he himself had hundreds. Such a man is worthy of death, he announces to his court. The prophet Nathan walks up and says, you are the man. You're guilty of this. The reason why injustice forms a pit in our stomach is because the more thoughtful we are about it, the more we realize we are complicit in the injustice in the world. We're just as guilty as anyone else. 
So the gall of injustice. But secondly, the satisfaction of injustice. There's the point. Injustice sticks inside of you because it's begging for resolution. It's begging for satisfaction. (laughs) But the problem is the majority of the ways where your heart is going to go in the face of injustice actually just make the problem worse. You know, on the one hand, you can attempt to like ignore the gall on the inside, but that never works. There's a boiling that goes on inside the belly of a person who tries to sort of keep their disenfranchisement down. It never works. It ends up in revolution, violence. You can't ignore things that, for that long. And of course, the other option is to sort of satisfy that wrongness in me by lashing out. I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to give it back to them. In which case, all you've done is perpetuate the violence. There's just another generation that'll walk around just as violent as you've been. But here's my premise. Jesus' handling of this kangaroo court is the only thing that gives us a map for the totally unique way that Christianity faces injustice. And they see it in the incident with Barabbas. Every commentator that I saw highlighted the fact that with Barabbas, you have the big theme of the passage, which is the exchange of the guilty for the innocent. And they all say the same thing. You know what Jesus is being at this moment in trading himself for Barabbas? He's being a good priest. Why? Well, look, a priest, if you think about it, was nothing more than a stand-in, an intercessor. A A prophet was there to represent God to you, but a priest was there to represent you to God. It was, it was sort of the same function that a lawyer has in a courtroom. Because if you think about it, you only look as good as your lawyer looks when you're in court. Now, somebody who's polished and skilled, you look polished and skilled. If they're a fool, you look like a jerk. You want to have somebody there. But see, the point of the New Testament, the point of this passage this morning, is that Jesus is becoming a priest slash lawyer who has a case. You know, oftentimes when a lawyer realizes that he has no case, he tries to win it by, uh, you know, by, 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 by sort of gaming the system. Maybe he pays off the judge or jury. You know, maybe he uses a bunch of fancy words to confuse everybody or looking for a loophole in the system. And I think that's honestly the way in which we think about it. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but I think this is the image that I have of Jesus oftentimes. That Jesus is up there and he's like, well, you know, Father, <clears throat> I'm here on behalf of my client, Les Newsom. And um, yeah, he did it again. Um, but you know what? Ugh, if there's any way that you could just let him off just this one more time, you know, please, pretty please, for my sake, maybe, Father, would you just let him off? And of course, you get to a point where you think to yourself, how long can that go on before the Father says, no, not even for your sake. I'm not going to overlook the thousandth time he did this. Oh, but here we go here to the, to the root cause of Jesus' suffering. Jesus is enduring these wild-eyed injustices because he's building a case. (laughs) Because Jesus is a perfect high priest, he has an airtight, infallible case. And it goes something like this. He looks up at his father and he says, Father, I know you to be just. And your law says that if Les Newsom is going to treat people the way in which he does, he deserves death for what he's perpetuated among society because of it. But Father, here are my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my blood, which was shed for that offense. And therefore, it would be wrong for you to exact two payments for one offense. So that now, do you see? 
Jesus isn't before his father asking for mercy. Jesus is now asking for justice for us because he's won it. (laughs) Because God created the the priesthood. He can be both merciful to us and he can exact punishment for the wrongs committed. Now, finally, justice is on our side. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how alienated you feel this morning. For anyone who has received Jesus as their Savior, they get the benefits of what he brings, which is not just pleading for mercy with our fingers crossed, but it's claiming the work of Jesus on your behalf, which makes justice speak on your behalf. That's why we sang this morning, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through faith in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. What a beauty. (laughs) Because God's problem is now solved. God gets the object of his affection, his people, at the greatest cost to himself, the loss of his son. And we get the object of our highest beauty and the greatest benefit to ourselves, the gaining of his son. And in the end, we see that this is this alone, only this can begin to erode the self-loathing, the self-hatred, the perfectionism, the, the, the smallness, the, the pettiness inside of us, which itself is the cause of injustice. Only Jesus' work can do this. Because when he does so, he empowers his people to go out and be agents of justice in the world. In other words, we're able now to stop living such vindictive lives that we can go out and be and encourage blessing around us. So one of the things that sort of, um, it's the reason why I like the holiday favorite, It's a Wonderful Life. And it's because of the premise of the whole movie. Because, you know, George Bailey runs the building and loan not, you know, for profits only. You know, he he does so so that the citizens of Bedford Falls uh, can get mortgages at fair and reasonable rates. His bottom line is not maximizing profits. You know, but after he gets goes through a period of being suicidal, you know what happens? He gets to see his beloved town as if he'd never been born. And what does he find? He finds this huge disparity between the really wealthy and the really poor. He finds crime in every nook and cranny of the town. He finds family breakdown gone on in every house. He sees the disintegration around him that would have been kept at bay by one faithful person who somehow found, because of the favor of his father, who found a way to be fair to people. That's a very biblical notion. (laughs) Because until you let this high priest, Jesus, melt you into joy, there's no way to put an end to injustice in the world, both from the abused and from the abuser. But when we do fill our hearts with his satisfaction and adjust our longings to his definition of what a successful life really is, then even the smallest of actions of justice on our part bear innumerable amounts of fruit that maybe you can't even see. That strikes me as compelling. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you draw us into that? Because it is, there's something we're compensating for when we scream at our televisions. There's something that we are dealing with inside when we are so angry behind the wheel of a car, when someone cuts us off in traffic. There's something inside of us 
It's a pain. It's a hurt. It's a knowing that we are contributing to the evil around us. Father, until you stand before us and convince us that Jesus is our high priest, there's no hope. There's no hope of putting an end from either side of those who feel oppressed and those who are accused of oppressing. There's no hope unless your cross takes over our imagination. So would you do that this morning and help us see it in a way in which we never have. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 